Hello again, everybody, with Steve Stone, Harry Carey. Bill Murray is with us, too. Here are the lineups, first of all, for tonight's game. As you look at Rick Sutcliffe for the Chicago Cubs, Webster in center, Sandberg in second, Grace at first, Dawson in right, Palmero in left, Law at third, the first pitch of the ball game. Look at the lights flickering all over Wrigley Field. Barry Hill catching Dunstan and Dunson Sharp. Sutcliffe pitching. Welcome back in on Hit and Run on the Score. Barry Rosner with you until 1240, taking you up to Cubs baseball. Right now, it's time to go out to the Score hotline where we're joined by the big redhead. He's former Cubs Cy Young Award winner Rick Sutcliffe. He's a Cubs coach in spring training. He's an analyst for ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at Sut underscore ESPN. And you can hear him right now on Hit and Run. Good morning, Sut. Well, very good morning to you, but uh, I've got to be honest to everybody out there. There's there's a lot more gray in my hair now than there is red. So, uh, <laughs> Harry nicknaming me that. Uh, back in 1984 was appropriate then. I don't know. I don't know what you'd go with right now, though. That's right. We'll we'll just we'll just go with that. We'll tell. But they don't have to know. They don't have to know. <laughs> so. What's it? What's it like hearing his voice to start that game right there? Wow. Um, you know, the, the the first thing I thought of was uh, you know the lineup that he read off there with Grace and Palmero and yeah. Dawson and and Sandberg. We know that uh, a couple of those guys have, have uh, already made their way to Cooperstown. Uh, you know, there's a case to be made for Gracie. I had 2,500 hits or something like that. Uh, I saw a statistic one time where um, he led the 90s in not only base hits but in doubles, and the only guy since back in the 1800s uh, that that led all of baseball in hits during any decade. The only guy that's not in the Hall of Fame is Pete Rose, and we know the story behind that. So, uh, you know, quite a lineup that that, uh, that that Harry called off for that night. And, uh, you know, as I've told you many times, Barry, I mean, it, it um, a lot of opening days. Uh, I pitched the first game ever at Camden Yard yep. uh, in Baltimore. Uh, but by far, even the playoffs, the All-Star, uh, all of those games, in my opinion, the, the biggest event that I was ever involved in uh, as a baseball player was, was opening night. We are three days away from the 30th anniversary of 8-8-88, the first night game at Wrigley Field. Not the first official night game at Wrigley Field. By the way, I talked to Mike Bilecki yesterday. He said to make sure to let you know that he is the man who started the first official night game at Wrigley Field. He wanted to make sure that you knew that. I, I, you know, he's reminded me of that several times, Barry. And, and uh, you know, I remember one time we saw, like, an envelope with, uh, like, a stamp on it or something like that yep. uh, with the official first night game. It was kind of a really neat deal. And there were two of them. There were one for 8-8-88, and then there was one for 8-9-88. So, no, big time by, uh, you know, he did a lot of great things for the Cubs as well. And uh, I, I just, in a, in a weird way, you know, um, for that, I don't know, it was like a two-and-a-half, three-hour rain delay, you know that I continued to throw. Yep. I mean, there was no way in the world that I was not going back out there to try to get at least through the fifth inning where I could qualify for, for the win because of that game. I, I wouldn't have done that for any other game. I wouldn't have done it for an opening day. It's just... You know, it was just too much to ask. I think I lost like eight pounds uh, during that game. I only pitched four innings, but you know, just trying to trying to stay loose if uh, 
if the if the rain were to have cleared off and we could have gone back out there. But I think my biggest regret of all is that when I saw Greg Maddox and Jody and, and Lancaster running out there to slide on the tarp, I mean, come on, Barry, I think a lot of us grew up with that little slip and slide in our backyard. And, um, you know, I mean, I flashed back to being a, an eight-year-old kid, and, and I just wished I would have run out there on that tarp with them. Hey, man, there, w- there was, you know, body parts falling off of you already at that point. You did not, <laughs> you did not need to be out there on the slip and slide. And how mad was Zim that that Maddox, who was you know on his way to winning eighteen games or whatever, how mad was right. Zim that he was out? There? I don't think he cared about the other guys as much. <laughs> you couldn't be more right. I mean, he didn't get you know Jody, you and Les, you could nip they go do what you guys want. Uh, you know, we're not leaning on you near as much as uh, as we are Mad Dog. But uh, you know, it was just um, that that whole thing, Barry. Uh, everything leading up to it. Um, I don't remember exactly what the Cubs did, but after the All-Star game that year, um, the alignment on the rotation, I remember a couple of things going on, and, and uh, you know, I, I went to Zim, I, I was like, what, what's going on here? And he goes, well, they want us to line you up for the first night game. And I remember just, I remember like getting like like chills, like goosebumps going Wow, wow, you know, this this is going to be cool. This is, you know, the the opening days that were there. Uh, you know, I go back to the game where, where President Reagan uh, yep. was coming into town. He was going to do a couple of innings with, with Harry. And um, I'm warming up in the bullpen. And you know me, I don't talk to anybody the day that I pitch or whatever. Well, all of a sudden, um, I think it was Dick Pohl, the pitching coach, said, Hey, Sut, I'm supposed to ask you, um, the president's going to be delayed. Uh, they're in traffic. They can't get here. Um, it's up to you. If you want to start on time, you know, that's up to you. Or if you want to wait for him to get here to throw out the first pitch. And, you know, I said, here, hold this ball. I'm going to sit down for a while. <laughs> um, and one of the coolest things that ever happened, so I find out that he's there. I finish warming up, and they tell me later on that he wasn't going to go out to throw the first pitch until he could thank me for waiting. And as I walked into the dugout, he goes, hey, Sut, I just – and Barry, when he called me, Sut, I'm like going, oh my goodness. I go, the president of the United States, wow. you know, well, he was a Cub fan. I mean, he watched he watched the games. Uh, I heard a lot. And just the fact that he knew my name just really kind of kind of blew me away. Wow. I, I never heard that story before. That's pretty cool. Well, it was nice of you to, it's nice of you to wait. If it had been like, say, Danny Jackson, he'd have said, no, I'm starting at 120 because that's the start time. <laughs> But it was very nice of you to wait for the president, son. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed. Well, you know that was that was cool, and 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 knowing that he was coming that day, and you know, you go back to uh, the game where we all knew it was in the papers, it was everywhere. Where um, Harry was out when 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 he uh, when he had to step out for a while, and they were bringing the celebrities in to to do the games, and the the day they brought Bill Murray in, and you know, I mean, like we're all just as excited as it could be, but again. The day I pitch, I don't talk to anybody. Well, I found out later on that as Bill Murray came in, he wanted to meet everybody. He wanted to meet as many players as he could. Well, I, you know, I was back in the trainer's room. I got some atomic bomb on my shoulder, and as I come out, I got, you know, they stretched me and whatever. And as I come out to get my my t-shirt and my uniform on, Bill Murray was sitting in my chair in front of my locker, <laughs> and there were like six or eight guys around. They're all laughing. And as I walk over to my locker, I'm not going to say a word to him, right? I'm just going to grab it and go. It's what I do. He stands up, and Barry, you remember, I think I've told you this story a hundred times. But anyway, he stands up, Bill Murray, and he goes, Rick Sutcliffe. He goes, 
aren't we blessed? And, of course, everybody, you know, you just start roaring, you just start laughing. No matter what he says, you, you know, you just yeah. feel like, you know, it, it just leads you to laughter. Well, anyway, I, I'm kind of growling. I reach over and I grab my jersey, and I go, you know what? You may never get to meet him again. And I said, that's enough. I stopped and I went, what a pleasure it is to meet you. I mean, (laughs) you know, it was just, you know, one of those moments where, you know, there's so many things that that go on at at Wrigley Field. Uh, I think a lot of it started in 84 when when, uh, all of a sudden the team got good and we had some people that I think a lot of the fans related to. And, you know, it's really just carried on into – into particularly, you know, obviously 2016, but you know the the, the players now they're just they're, they're so uh, approachable. Um, their 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 youth, the 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 young part about that team is something that uh, a lot of the young fans are relating to, and I just don't know that you know the the Cub organization has ever been in better shape or been more popular than it is right now. He's former Cubs Cy Young Award winner Rick Sutcliffe. Uh, he's a Cubs coach in spring training, works for ESPN as an analyst. Sut, the, uh, the lead-up to the night game, uh, the hype was ridiculous. Uh, I don't know how much you remember about that, but it was, well, I mean, it was it was as big as a playoff game, if not bigger, but it, it just went on and on and on all year. And uh, you said that Zim had it lined up so you would start that game. I kind of remember you lobbying for that game or saying something along the lines of, there's no way I'm not pitching that game. Um, well, but- they, they, you're right. They had already told me, though, that I was pitching. And then at one point, I don't know if I was chatting with you or, or Bob Verde or who it was, um, I wasn't supposed to say anything, a lot like – when Johnny Oates told me I was going to pitch the first uh, game ever at Camden Yard, yeah. I wasn't allowed to say anything to anybody up until I think it was like 10 days out when Johnny made the announcement. Um, no, but you're exactly right. I, I mean, it was uh, something that, you know, as we looked at it, I, there, was, there was always going to be another opening day. Um, but in our minds, I think we all thought there will never be another opening night. Um, and and, and it's, still, it's still, even though the game was rained out, it, yeah. It didn't change anything, I don't think, to anybody about that game. Um, as Harry talked about, you know, all of the flashes that were taken uh, from that first pitch. I, I think I had ten opening days, and I can remember some flashes going off on an opening day, but very nothing like that. I mean, nothing like the the scene that they had there. Um, just the, the you know the everything about it. I mean, I, I, we were told that you know Secret Service and 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 you know there was so much protection that went on around there. And I've never, I mean, I've never had so many ticket requests uh, for people to come in. I think I ended, I had to get like 80 tickets for that game. Ooh. And, you know, lucky enough to be able to do it, you know, that I always had 50 tickets uh, for the foundation. Uh, we gave away 50 tickets to uh, every home game that the Cubs had. Uh, the only criteria was that normally you wouldn't be able to go to the game. So we did a lot of a, a charity work. We did a lot of things to help raise money for, for certain groups. But uh, that was a day where I decided to buy the tickets back from the foundation so that you know I could accommodate as many people as, as I could. What's the, what's the lasting memory for you? Is it those flashbulbs at the opening pitch? Is it uh, the feeling you had of being on the mound? I mean, look, you... You pitched in playoff games. You pitched. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that first game to Camden Yards. That was that was something else. And of course, you wouldn't let anybody take the baseball from you that day. But you. No. But I mean, you pitched in a lot of in, in a lot of big moments in a lot of big games. And 
and had a lot of nervous times because that's uh, that's that's that was normal. The adrenaline was flowing. But that feeling that night of being on the mound was there anything that compared to that? It, it, you know, it, it, it's really interesting that you say that because everything was kind of the same leading up to that. I mean, I mean, I I, I got excited, nervous, whatever you want to call it. Uh, before every start that I ever had. I, I do the same thing now before a telecast. I sure. mean, your palms get a little sweaty, and it just means to me that, you know, it, it's something that you care about. But the thing, like a lot of people say, you know, if you had something back, what would it be? Obviously, people are going to say the home run to, to Phil Bradley. That's not it. If, if I could have one thing back, Barry, before that game, I think, you, you, again, you know the story, but maybe the people out there don't. Um, the Hall of Fame came to me before the game to talk to me. And I'm like, what? What do you want? I don't talk to people the day of the game, but I guess I will here. They said, we want the first pitch. We want the baseball. We want to take it to the Hall of Fame. I go, what are you talking about? And they go, well, we've talked to the home plate umpire. And I go, speak English. Tell me what you got, and then, and then get out of my way. They said, well, <laughs> it's going to be a generous outside corner. You'll have all the room you want out there. Damon Berryhill knew the same thing. So if you go back and look at he, they were told by Eric Gregg that he would call the strike. You have to throw a strike on the first pitch. You have to do that opening day. You have to do that. You have to do it ever. We all know that. But by design, Damon and I, we were going to throw the fastball like 10 inches off the plate, not high, not low, where anybody could complain, and Eric Gregg was going to call it a strike. Well, Three years later, I run into Eric somewhere. I forget what it was like. I think we were doing um, Family Feud, or I don't. We did some kind of TV show together. And I said, "What happened on that first pitch?" And he goes, "As you started to wind up, I started thinking, wow, there's a lot of people here. I'm not going to miss the first pitch.'" And he changed his mind. If you look at it, I mean, I paint the corner. Now, now, what got me was all the flash bulbs that went off. I, I, I didn't know what had happened. I, I didn't even think about. People, because it was so, there were so many of them, more, so much more so than, than anything ever. I, I honestly thought it was my nerves. I, I thought, like, whoa, you're, this is kind of, what, what's going on here? Are you okay? I mean, because like, I'd never, like, I, I was kind of blurry a little bit or whatever. But the thing that makes me maddest of all is the fact that I, I, I didn't forget what the Hall of Fame said. He might have fouled it off. He might have hit it for a home run. But at least I would have I thrown a strike. I threw that ball exactly where I wanted. I just didn't know that uh, the, it, it wasn't going to be called a strike. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That yeah. they, they're arranging yeah. They're arranging pitches before the game. I mean, how about that? You know who the first guy to hit a ball off the light towers was, though? Yeah, that would be me. I, I fouled one off. I mean, I just got a piece of it. But there's all these first. Everything in there is a first, this, that, and everything. The first guy to hit a ball off the light tower was uh, was the Red Baron, yeah. Well, you could you could swing the bat. I mean, you could swing. You're, I, hey, I will put your home run in game one, 84 NLCS against the Padres, the one that just about hit Murphy's bleachers, I'll put, <laughs> I'll put that up there with any right field home run ever. If you go back and listen to the, to the replay, um, Reggie Jackson was one of the commentators, and Reggie Jackson goes, that ball went completely out of the stadium. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, okay. I, mean, I, I appreciate saw, that, Mr. October. I saw Willie Stargell hit some, some pretty long home runs to right field, but that one was right center, and it might have got a piece of Murphy's. I mean, your guys over there ought to know. Of all people, I, I, they ought to know. I, I, I've heard that it, that it bounced into Murphy's, yeah. I heard that it actually cleared the street or whatever that is, but uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, that, that – 
that whole year, and, and, and I think that my favorite part of, of 1984 was after we clinched in Pittsburgh and we came back, uh, we're in the clubhouse, we're getting ready for a game, and all of a sudden, like like Billy Williams and Ernie Banks and Fergie Jinkson, Jenkins and, and, and Glenn Becker, I, I mean, they just kept coming in. And this guy comes up to me, I didn't know who he was, but Barry, he grabbed me, he grabbed me by my T-shirt, and he looked at me, and he had like tears in his eyes. And he goes, I'll never be able to thank you. He said, you finally gave these fans the one thing that we, we, we didn't get done that we wanted to do, and that was an opportunity for the playoffs. Barry, it, it, as you know, it was Ron Sano. Yeah. And, like, it just it – just, I had no idea – I didn't know that it had been 39 years. I didn't know any of that stuff. I, you know, and, and even the fact that we clinched, we didn't care. That, that wasn't our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal was to go way beyond that. But the fact that he was so passionate um, about the fans – uh, about how it wasn't for him, it wasn't for me, it wasn't for Dallas Green, but it was for the fans that had come out there and supported him all the years that, that he played for the Cubs, and just the excitement that he had that you know the fans were finally going to get an opportunity to to watch some postseason baseball. And as you know, I did Barry, I did exactly the same thing to Theo Epstein um, after Game Seven in Cleveland. I went up there and I thanked him for doing the one thing that we weren't able to get done. So just a lot of, lot of you know, really good things that are going on right now. And, of course, the, you know, the Cubs are they're not, they're not dominating the, the Central like we thought they would. But, um, you know, I think there's been 60 games that Bryant and Rizzo have been in the lineup together. Uh, the starting rotation has had a, a bunch of setbacks. The bullpen has had some injuries. So I, I, I've, I've said this many times. I, I think, and, and, and I was there. Uh, with Joe Madden in Tampa, I saw how he took a hundred loss team to the World Series uh, in 08 against Philadelphia. I still think this is the best job that Joe Madden has ever done as a manager, and as you know, that's saying quite a bit. You know, it's amazing to hear your passion for this team, even though you know you're not you don't spend 12 months a year here anymore. Uh, it's amazing to hear your passion. I, I just think about as I listen to you talk about 1984 and what that means to you. And, and believe me, there's people listening who um, had waited their whole lives for 1984. And it, it didn't end the way you guys wanted, but they waited their whole lives for that. You ever think about how different your life would have been without that trade here in 84? I mean, you're you're known as Rick Sutcliffe, Chicago Cup, e- even though, you know, you started with the Dodgers and went to Cleveland and ultimately uh, went to Baltimore and, and did, you know, in St. Louis and, and did things in other places. You're Rick Sutcliffe, Chicago Cub, Cy Young Award winner, uh, you know, the NLCS, all of that stuff. That's, that's how people will always know you. And that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, think about how different your life might have been. You're, you're exactly right. Um, I, I, I think about it, and, and I thank the Lord, every single day um, for the blessings that, that have come along. And it's interesting you say that. Um, last Monday and Tuesday, um, Rossi, David, and I uh, did the games in Boston uh, against Philly. And we're sitting there. It's just the two of us. We're sitting there. It's about a half hour before the game. We're prepping and whatever. And we just kind of looked at each other like, can you believe this? I mean, we're getting paid to sit here hmm. and talk about baseball. We've got the best seat in the house at Fenway Park. 
It's like, how in the world did this happen? And we both, I mean, we both knew. We looked at each other like, you know, if it weren't for the Chicago Cubs, I don't care what we did. I don't care how many games we won or what you did. It's the popularity of the Chicago Cubs that gave us the opportunity to work for ESPN. So, um, you know, it, 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 I, I look back on that and I think about how I almost messed it all up because Dallas Green called me uh, in the clubhouse in Oakland saying that we're going to make a deal for you. But he says, we're not going to bring you over here if you don't sign a three-year extension. And I said, Dallas, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not going to sign the extension. My dream is to play for the Kansas City Royals. And at the end of this year, I'm a free agent. That's what my wife and I want to do. We want to go back home. And I said, besides, Dallas, I'm not the one asking to be traded. I go, Burt Blylevin wants out of here. And he, <laughs> I can't say exactly what he said, but he basically said, I don't want Blylevin. And he hung up the phone on me. I don't know what's going on. I find out an hour later that he went ahead and made the deal. You also know that the, the Royals that winter offered me the George Brett lifetime contract, whatever that was, or, or all those details. And my plan was to sign it, and I got a phone call from Harry Carey. And Harry says, you can do a lot of things in your career. You can go wherever you want. You can." He knew the Yankees had made me a ridiculous offer for money. You can take whatever. He goes, but you'll always regret it. He goes, because you're not only in the minds of the Chicago Cub fans, but you have come into their household. You're in their heart. You're part of the family uh, with what's gone on there, and you will regret it the rest of your life if you don't come back. And that just, it, it just resonated with me. And I hung up the, when we hung up the phone, I, I looked to Robin, and she goes, what? And I go, I think I'm going back to Chicago. Wow. And she goes, really? Because we had, Barry Axelrod, as you know, our agent, had asked us to list the top five teams that we wanted to go to. And Robin and I had the exact same list. All five of them were Kansas City, Kansas City. Kansas. I mean, we there was no doubt that's what we wanted to do. But um, Harry Carey was exactly right. I, I mean, that going back and, you know, the fact that we got back to the playoffs in 89 and some of the other things that went on there, um, I, I, I'm just really fortunate that I didn't mess all that up. Before we let you go, Sut, um, since we're since – we're... Going down memory lane, uh, Sandberg told me a story earlier this year that I don't think he had ever told me before. And this would have been good information to have any of like a thousand times before that, including when we wrote a book. Thanks a lot. But he but he told me the night before that. <laughs> but he told me, yeah, I mean, you know, Rhino, it's like good. Good luck, you know, dragging that out of him. But, you know, the the night before the Sandberg game where he hits the two home runs off a of suitor, which only made him like an international superstar and changed his life forever. Um yeah. You guys all went out to a concert, and I don't remember. Uh, Alabama. Alabama, that's right. Uh, I did not know that story until until this year at the Cubs convention when he told us that on the air, that you guys all went out and got hammered the night before, and he was half throwing up in the dugout before the game. <laughs> and, you know, I rode to the park with him every day for, you know, for eight years or whatever it was. Yeah. And, you know, Rhino never did that. Um, but we were all fired up about it. We went backstage and met Randy Owen and all of them pregame. And then, um, you know, of course, after the game, we hung out with them. And it was just one of those moments, you know, one of those nights you just didn't want to end. And, um, no, you're exactly right. Rhino's never, he's never been a big drinker, but, right. um, 
You know, I, I think he probably got overserved a little bit that night. But <laughs> you know, looking back on it, maybe uh, maybe maybe he should have done that more often. Maybe he should have been the Mark Grace of, of the Chicago Cubs, and you know, that was feeling like that was always kind of a norm for Gracie. But <laughs> I, I I think that the, you know the, the funniest thing about that game is that was the first game my wife ever saw at Wrigley Field. Come on! And as I came out after the game, Robin had tears in her eyes from all the excitement and how how, how crazy it was, and she goes. Um, are all the games here like that? And I go, no, they're they're not all like that. So we get in the car, and as we're driving home, she looks at me. I was pitching the next day. She goes, you you need to do well tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what did you what are you talking about? You think that's not you know? I don't plan on doing that every day. I mean, whatever. But I I kind of sense that 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 you know. I mean, here we go. We got a chance to do something and. I don't. I think I struck out thirteen or fourteen that day against the Cardinals, and I, I think it was whatever we beat them by a lot. But it was kind of at, at that game. It was kind of that was kind of the end of the Cardinals as far as we were concerned. We started focusing on making sure the Mets didn't didn't catch us. Wow, amazing stuff, Sud. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. It's always a joy to talk to you on the air, off the air. I, I hope our listeners uh, enjoyed it as much as I did, and uh, I'll catch up with you soon. My brother, you know I'm always available for you. You know that. Appreciate it very much. Talk to you soon, Sut. See you, pal. Rick Sutcliffe, uh, former Cubs pitcher, Cy Young Award winner, ESPN analyst, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people and probably a lot of you listening that 1984, that was that was their team. That was their team because if you're of a certain age, you'd never experienced any winning of any kind with the Chicago Cubs, and that was an unexpected season, and uh, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was really the beginning of, uh, of the fandom for a lot of people, and uh, it was the first experience for a lot of people having any joy on the north, uh, north side of Chicago. So uh, Rick Sutcliffe holds a special place in the hearts of Cub fans. We've got to take a break. Uh, when we come, no, Eli's uh, giving me, you giving me the finger, Eli, or was that a, what was that exactly from the back of your studio back there? What was that? That was my mad dog waving my hands signal. (laughs) You doing the, you doing the arrow while firing a shotgun or whatever? I've just, I've just tried to, I've just tried to reflect on, on my days watching mad dog this week. It's, he was back from vacation. So it was a big week for me. I'm told there's some there's some quality audio that you have for me. We'll play it in the next half hour coming up. Do we have to take a break here? Yes. I know, I know but you first wanted. Thing, to, I know you wanted to play that Bill Murray. Um, do we have time for that? Right? Yeah, here? we could we could squeeze it in. So right. first things first. Uh, this is Harry Carey and Bill Murray talking before that uh, first night game at Wrigley Field to open things up. Hello again, everybody. Harry Carey at Wrigley Field on this noteworthy night, indeed. Eight eight eighty eight. That's the date. And this bud's for you, Bill Murray. Thank you, Harry. I've been dying under these lights until you handed me this thing. It's such a pleasure to see you, especially on a noteworthy event like this one. Well, I don't know how I feel about night baseball. It's great in the minor leagues, but it's someplace else to go in town besides your restaurant, which is a good thing. (laughs) You know... uh, How's your mother, by the way? My mother is, uh, she's off the booze, real pretty, but she's doing really well. She's doing great. That bit you put on when you were, when I was sick and you were on and did such a great job, the bit you did about your mother, among other things, I think it should be a special cassette. You ought to sell about 10 million of them. 
Well, uh, I've got uh, 200000 of my own, which I'm willing to unload for some sort of a price. But uh, my mother really wants too big a percentage, so I'm keeping them in, a gar in the garage right now at home. And have you thought about broadcasting baseball as something after you're tired of uh, being a great star of movies, stage, television, screen, whatever you have? I think when I completely lose my mind here, I'm going to step right up into your spot here in the booth. There's no doubt about you being a Cub, a true Cub fan, is there? Well, I went with the blue and white tonight, figuring I could look like the ground crew in case I got thrown out, I could get back in. It's really beautiful. It's the most beautiful park in the world, and it's it's pretty under the lights, too. That's what I was hoping. Now tell me, Bill, where are you making your own now? In Hollywood or in New York? Well, I'm making it in New York. What's the, what's happening in your career? Anything new? Uh, well, I made a movie called Scrooge that's going to come out. Scrooge. I'll bet you you've got to be screwed. Yes, that's right. And I would imagine that's hilariously funny. You have a vivid imagination, Harry. You really do. It better be funny. There's going to be big trouble for me. Yeah. Bill, good to stick around for a little while. I know it's warm up here. Bill Murray, a priceless guy. Don't go away now because we're going to be back with the first night baseball game ever played at Wrigley Field. Coming up in a moment. Welcome back in on Hit and Run on the Score. Barry Rosner with you until 1240, taking you up to Cubs baseball right here on 670 The Score. You know what that music means. Right now it's time to go out to the Score Hotline where we're joined by Mark Zuckerman who covers the Nationals for Masson. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Zuckerman. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Good morning, Barry. How are you? Everything's good. I got to say that I, you know, you'd think it would get old, but I am immensely entertained every single day by your responses to the people who are ripping you because they think you're Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> and they hate Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg for whatever reason and uh, or he's lost $100 billion on whatever day it was. Um, I'm, always, I'm always entertained by that, so continue to do that. Thank you. I appreciate that my hard work, <laughs> that somebody enjoys it out there. It's, I, I get a kick out of it the vast majority of the time. Um, there are days every once in a while when it becomes overwhelming when he's in the news and I start getting some things. There's plenty of tweets I don't share because of the nature of what yes, is actually included course. in that, and those are the ones that kind of bother me. But for now, I'm still kind of enjoying it. My only wish, as I've said all along, I just hope the guy doesn't ever run for political office because if that happens, um, I'm really in trouble. You're gonna have to. <laughs> you're gonna have to change your name. It's bad enough when he testifies before Congress or, you know, Facebook loses uh, its value by 20 percent or something like that. Yeah, those are those are rough days for you. But we will. We will switch now to the Nationals, who have also had many rough days this year. What a what a strange season! Um, it's, I guess, when you think back on all the injuries and and uh, you know all of the drama and the new manager and and the Bryce Harper stuff and everything else, it shouldn't be shocking they are where they are. But does it still surprise you that they sit here today where they are in the standings in the NL East? I mean, yeah, it does because I think look, what it took for them to get to this point was kind of this perfect convergence of what you just described. It's not one thing that has led to this. It's the combination of the injuries. It's Bryce Harper having the season that he's had, although since the All-Star break, he's been much better. He's kind of slowly but surely getting there. Uh, it's, um, you know, adjusting to a new manager and a new coaching staff. People kind of forget it's not just that. They only retained one coach from last year, their third base coach. Everybody else is new, new pitching coach, new hitting coach. So you put that in. It's uh, the Phillies and the Braves playing better than I think most teams expect. Although, honestly, I thought the Phillies 
were going to be a wild card team this year. I did like them. I didn't think the Braves were quite ready yet. But you put that all together, and, and that's how they end up in the situation that they're in. Um, the good news, I suppose, from their standpoint is that there is still time. There's not a lot of time. They've got to pretty much play almost perfect baseball the rest of the way if they're going to pull this off. But they are playing better. They are getting healthier. And um, at least around here, they're still trying to hold out hope that they can pull this thing off. Big week coming up for them. Big series. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if you would call it critical, but it seems like you're kind of getting to a point, not you, of course, but I mean, baseball is kind of getting to a point for the Nationals where they really need a big week coming up. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to call it critical because, um, you know, every game they have left against the Braves and the Phillies is going to be important. And they're playing four games against the Braves in three days because of a doubleheader on Tuesday. And then at the end of all that, they come to Chicago to see you guys, and they've got three games against the Cubs. And as you know, that means day game right off the bat. So you're traveling, you're getting there to Wrigley Field and not a lot of sleep, and playing right off the bat an important game um, you know that they can't let up on either. So I do think this is the week that may tell us whether this thing's going to happen or have a chance of happening, or worst-case scenario, by the end of all that, they could be in a really tough spot, and now all of a sudden you're worried about it. So, um yeah, I mean, they're all big at this point, but I think especially this week, not just the teams they're playing, but the way the schedule uh, is lined up, this could be kind of the make-or-break point for them. The trade deadline was pretty hysterical if you're on Twitter, and I recommend that you not be because it's a terrible place to be. On most days, but especially around the trade deadline, it was pretty hysterical. Even some uh, what what I used to think of as respected national writers threw pretty much every name in the game up against the wall and then associated them with pretty much every team in the game, uh, separating fact from fiction, basically impossible at that point. So what is the what is the truth about what occurred after speaking to Mike Rizzo? What really occurred with Bryce Harper? And what really occurred with the Nationals in terms of potential buying or selling? Well, I think they're kind of connected, to be honest. I think what this basically amounted to was they went into that last weekend before the break against the uh, Marlins, and they were kind of stuck there in no man's land. Are they close enough to make a run at it and say, we want to buy? Are they too far back to make a run? Maybe they have to sell. And the sense I got is that the not only Mike Rizzo, but the ownership group said, we're going to take this weekend to kind of evaluate where we are. The performance in Miami is going to play a role in this. And at the end of all that, we're going to decide, okay, where do we stand in this whole situation? And so because of that, because they had to look at all their options, Mike Rizzo did place some calls to teams about Bryce Harper. Now, doesn't mean he was going to do it. I never really felt like that was likely to happen. But it was his job to at least find out, hey, what could we get? And the other part of this is that had they done it, it wouldn't necessarily have been a concession on this season. There could have been one of those kind of deals that you're getting big leaguers in return, and maybe you're getting two or three guys that can actually help you win this year uh, as opposed to just tanking on this season and moving forward. Well, basically at the end of all that, I think the the names that they were hearing in return just wasn't enough uh, to make that kind of drastic move. The team went two and two, as they've done so often this year, kind of muddying the waters as well. And they get to the end of all that, and they're, I think, five and a half games back at the deadline, and ownership said, you know what, we're going to give this a shot. We're not going to add at this point, but we're going to give it a shot and, and hope that the group that we assembled ultimately is better than the two teams ahead of us, that when they look at it on paper, they feel like they still have the best roster, and now it's up to this group they assembled to actually get the job done. 
Terribly unfair question to ask, but I'll, I'll ask you to guess anyway. If they had dealt Harper, would it have precluded him coming back? I think it probably would have. I know people can say, hey, they can always resign a guy. It doesn't mean the relationship's destroyed. But, um, look, that's a tough thing to convince a guy of. Um, I know that he and Rizzo both have talked about the relationship they have and how strong it is, and, and Bryce said he didn't take any hard feelings even from the fact that they were discussing it. Um, but deep down, that's a tough thing to hear. And if it actually did go through, um, I guess you never say never. But for a situation that I think I and most people around here all along have felt like he's more likely to be somewhere next year, even in a best-case scenario, he's more likely to be somewhere else, I think if he had been traded or even with the discussions, I think it lessens the possibility that he returns here next year anyways. What is the latest on Steven Strasburg, and uh, what do you expect from him the rest of the year? What's fair to expect from him the rest well, of the year? Well, yeah, this is the thing. When he's out there and he's healthy, he's still as good as anybody in the game. Yeah. The problem has been keeping himself out there. He missed six weeks with a shoulder inflammation, came back, was not good in that first start back, and then ends up immediately going back on the DL, and they discovered that it was actually a neck issue, a pinched nerve in his neck that was causing the shoulder pain. So he gets an injection, a nerve block there. Everybody's encouraged by it, Strasburg himself, but now he's got to build himself back up again. Uh, and so he's just getting to a point now where he's ready to throw off a bullpen mound. So you got to go through that progression. Um, probably have to make at least one rehab start. So we're still talking a couple of weeks. Now, if in the end, after all that, he comes back and he's healthy and pitches well, then I guess it was worth it. But he's going to end up missing probably at least half of the season. And that this has kind of been the story for him. When he's out there, he's really good, as you guys saw in the playoffs last year. Mm-hmm. When he's not, uh, it hurts this team, and they've had to deal with this a lot over the years. And The reason they, they stick with it is because they know how good he is when he's there, but um, he's yet to really show that, I think aside from one year, that he can give them 30 starts, and they just kind of have to understand this is going to be part of the equation, and they hope that when he does come back, it's not too late. He's Mark Zuckerman. He covers the Nationals for Masson. Mark, uh, what has to go right? And feel free to list dozens of things if you if you need to. Um, what has to go right for this team to win this division? You know, honestly, I don't think it's as many things as it may sound like. I mean, obviously, they have to be healthy. That, that that's a given. They need Strasburg back. They need Sean Doolittle, their closer back, and the hope is that that's going to happen soon. But really, to me, what it is. How was this team built all along, starting pitching? And during that stretch of about six weeks when they were falling apart, they had the worst starters ERA in baseball, which is astounding. For this group, that yeah. should not be the case. Yeah. Uh, since the All-Star break, they've been one of the best. So it's not just Max Scherzer. It's Gio Gonzalez and Tanner Roark, uh, now Jeremy Hellickson, hopefully when Strasburg gets back. That's going to be the way, ultimately, that leads them. So that's number one. And number two? is that their stars have to start playing like we've seen from the past. Harper, Daniel Murphy, Ryan Zimmerman. The good news is they all have been hitting the ball really well in the last two weeks. Now they got to sustain it. They've been doing it against some lesser competition. But if the pitch, starting pitching does what it's supposed to do and the star players do what they're supposed to do, uh, I think they feel like they have the opportunity to do it. And all it's going to take to me is just to put a little bit of pressure on the Braves and the Phillies. These are teams that have not been in that situation. Not in a while, at least. Yeah. Uh, and if they feel like, hey, this talented team that everyone expected all along was going to be there, oh boy, here they come. And it, it reminds me, and Davey Martinez has talked about it, what the Cubs went through last year. Uh, they were, what, under 500 at the break? They came out hot. They caught the Brewers, and, and those head-to-head games kind of told the whole story of the second half, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, I'm not a, speaking of Davey Martinez. Uh, I'm not a fan of rookie managers for veteran teams trying to win a World Series. Uh, I'm not saying this is his fault, uh, and I'm. I mean, I'm not blaming him. I'm simply not blaming him. But I wonder what the reaction is to him in Washington, and how the players have taken to him this year. Well, let's let's start with the circumstances that he was hired, and whatever you feel about Dusty Baker, and I, I know you've not. A, you're not a Dusty Baker guy. No, no, but, no, no. Uh, but <laughs> the circumstances in which he was fired after winning two straight division titles and an ownership group that basically overrode the GM's decision there and said, nope, we need to make a change. And now the next guy comes in and it's said right up front, look, you win the division, that's not good enough. We expect better than that. Yeah. And you're going to put a guy who hasn't done it before in that spot and he's an outsider, didn't have a connection to the organization. That's a tough situation to put yourself in. Davey came in spring training. He tried to set the tone. He tried to say, hey, we're going to have fun. We're going to be loose. Uh, sort of a lot of the things that you've seen over the years with Joe Madden and the Cubs. And the players took to him. And I think everybody felt like this was a good vibe they had going. And then they start the season. They're dealing with injuries and everything else. And they're not playing as well. And now the pressure starts to come in. So um, are there mistakes that he's made as a first-year manager? Yeah, especially when it comes to bullpen usage and I think the grumbling you've heard from guys, and I put Brandon Kinsler high on that list, uh, mostly has come from the bullpen. I think most of the clubhouse, though, has bought into him. Um, they appreciate his uh, positive tone. They appreciate the, the fact that he's trying to say to them, hey, you're talented enough. Just go out and don't put pressure on yourself and be loose, have fun. That all makes sense. But if at the end of this season they don't make the playoffs, there's going to be a whole lot of pressure, and people are going to be saying, well, wait a minute, you fired the last guy even after he won two straight division titles. Now you're telling us we're going to stick with this guy who you gave a three-year contract to. It's just a tough spot for anyone to be in, I think. What's your opinion, quickly, Mark, and I know you got to go and we got to let you go, of the way Martinez has handled the bullpen? I think it's been a learning process. I think he's still learning uh, about how to override what guys are telling you. You ask a guy, hey, are you good for yeah. today? And they're, they're always going to say yes. Yeah. Well, you've got to be able to say, well, hang on a second. We've pitched you X number of times recently. I warmed you up yesterday and didn't bring you in. I've got to step in and say no. And I think that's the hardest part. And honestly, the pitching coach has to be a big part of it as well. Um, I think it's been a learning curve. I think he's gotten better at it as the season's gone on. I think some of the relievers have uh, appreciated the more open communication here lately. Um, you know, will it pay off in the end? We'll see. But for any, for any rookie manager, that's always going to be the toughest thing. And I think that's certainly been a part of it this year. Mark, great stuff. Really appreciate it. You're always uh, gracious with your time, and we appreciate that as well. Who knows? We may see in the playoffs yet again. I'd, I don't think I'd be shocked if that happened. I wouldn't be shocked either. I'd love to get to cover a few more playoff games at Wrigley Field, believe Mark, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Barry. Mark Zuckerman from Masson covers the Nationals in Washington. Boy, there's been some ugly there this year. There has been all sorts of ugly there this year. But that thing's not over yet. That thing is not over yet. Eli, uh, Jason Benetti went on a rant last night after a replay. Uh, he was correct, by the way. The replay clearly showed the runner to be safe. Uh, the umpire called him out. After replay review, the runner was still out. It made no sense, and this is what Jason Benetti had to say. Ricky Renteria, during the break, by the way, was ejected from this game for arguing instant replay accurately. So, well, that's, I think it's the building. I think it is this building that... 
brings out the worst in certain situations. Let me let me say this. Yeah. I really like instant replay generally. Mm -hmm. But when we have stop motion, a freeze of a ball outside of a glove when somebody's on the bag, it gives replay a bad name. And that's not right either because they do get it right most of the time. But that one was not correct. Ricky Renteria came out to argue. And unless he flew to New York and argued, he wouldn't really be talking to the people who were in charge of the call. No. And then we don't get an explanation. And this is why I really believe Major League Baseball owes the in-park fans and all of you watching an explanation after the call. Because if there is some part of that that we are missing for some reason, I don't think it exists, we should hear about it. I think eventually we're going to get to the point where the umps do make a call. In other words, they are going to tell the people at the ballpark and the people listening on the radio, watching on television, they're going to tell them exactly what went into making that call, what the call was, and that way you're going to clear up a whole lot of inaccuracies. I don't think it's that difficult a concept to get to, by the way. No, the NFL does it with every one of its games. Yes. And they don't train the line judge and the umpire and the side judge to do it. It's just the referees. So it's just the crew chiefs in Major League Baseball that you have to train to do it. But we deserve an explanation, and you as fans deserve to know the rules of the game. No, I, for one of the few times I agree with you uh, 100%. Now that you've cooled down a touch, well, look, I'm in your corner. No, I, but it's important to know that these umpires try very hard, yeah. and they want to get it right. They do. they do. And that does not mean we can't say they got it absolutely wrong there, because they did. Thoughts on him for a sec. Go ahead. <laughs> That rant, courtesy of uh, WGN Television. Well, uh, Jason and Steve are correct. And that one was particularly disturbing because in real time, the runner looked safe. And on replay, the runner looked safe. And after the challenge, the runner looked safe. And in all of the above occurrences, he was ruled to be out. And without an explanation, it's just all you say to yourself is, well, why, why even bother? Why do we have replay?" I mean, the big thing with replay is everyone, well, we should get every single call right. Every single call should be right. But you can't even get a simple replay. That's a simple replay. You can't even get that one right. What is, so what's the point of it? And, and Benetti is correct. You, you don't have to be a cheerleader for everything in baseball just because you're a broadcaster. You don't have to be a cheerleader for everything regarding your team if you're a broadcaster in baseball. That makes for a bad broadcast if you're lying all the time. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm not saying Benetti hasn't been impartial to some calls, but I feel like this is the first time he's really shown that sort of passion to you know a negative call. Uh, well, I, I mean, I can't speak to the accuracy. Or at least in an elongated format. I would say that's uh, I've I that's the longest one I remember and and the most direct. But he's correct. He's absolutely correct. You have some special Mad Dog for me from this week that I missed. Uh, although I heard about it, uh, is this uh, what? It, what is it about a minute? Do we have a minute? Yes, we got right. plenty of time for okay. this. Of course. Right, go ahead. 
So this is Mad Dog, and he was talking about the Red Sox are in control of the NL or they're the AL. Yeah, they're beating the Yankees' brains in, and this is even before this series started, or was this? This on was Friday? a game into the series, so he so was already was... he predicted essentially that the Red Sox were going to take the first three in this series. But here's what he had to say okay. about that first game on Thursday night, and it was typical Mad Dog. They got the Yankees now five back in a loss column. The Yankees played two horrendous games in a row. Holder doesn't know what he's doing, trying to get the guy back to third base. He screwed up the pick, the, the uh, ball back to the mound, and then after the game, Boone doesn't want to knock Holder. Hold on now, yeah, I know that. Run the guy back to his base. Stare him down. Don't throw the baseball. Oh my gosh, Aaron is. Listen, we're gonna like you if you knock a player. It's not the end of the world. He doesn't knock Torres. He doesn't knock Sanchez. He, he, he gives Sonny Gray a pass. And last night, same thing. And that's a horrendous decision. I'm sorry. You don't take... I, I, I understand he wasn't great. But uh, three innings? I mean, Brian Johnson went five in a game, gave a million of home runs, was trailing throughout, threw 100 and some odd pitches, and Cora got him a win. Now, I don't want to make Alex Cora out to be, you know, a job of coffee, but he got him a win. Look him up. You don't know who he is, Evan Longoria. He got him a win. Thoughts there. What can you tell me on that? <laughs> Stare him down. He's just screaming. Don't throw the baseball. They got him a win. <laughs> I will say this. <laughs> Aaron Boone is. <laughs> He's just yelling. Just... Oh, my gosh. I will say this. Aaron Boone's had a very bad two weeks. Uh, not because his team is getting its brains beat in by the Red Sox. And by the way, wow. I mean, my Yankees pick. Is not looking very good right now, but uh, you know they're going to have to play the they're going to have to play the the coin flip game, and um, they get through that. Doesn't mean they still can't win the World Series, but wow, are the Red Sox taking it to them? I mean, it's not even a series, and Aaron Boone is just uh, some of his pitching decisions are dreadful. I honestly don't know what. I mean, sometimes you make the right move and it doesn't work out. That's okay. You, I mean, you do the right thing and sometimes it just doesn't work out. But I don't understand. Some of the things he's done over the last couple of weeks. What else you got for me, Eli? All right. And then one last thing that we have time for is the Dennis Eckersley thing. This is from, I believe it was from Friday. It was This is also the Red Sox-Yankees uh, game on Nesson. And it was a little back and forth. It started off in the dugout, uh, in the Red Sox dugout, but with the uh, dugout broadcaster. And then it went into the actual broadcast booth. Rodriguez loves pitching against the Yankees. He loves the rivalry, the intensity, everything about it. So it's a little bit of a surprise that his best friend in the game is Luis Severino. Rodriguez told me that they met when they were in A-ball. They started talking and have remained close ever since. Now, Eck, Jerry, I'm curious. Who are some of the guys that you guys were close with despite being in the middle of a rivalry? The one you want to take that? I don't know about a rivalry. I was... I had a real close friend that stole my wife. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Jeez, Zach, you had to go there, right there? That's the first place I went. <laughs> and, I, and, and we're the idiots over here laughing. <laughs> and everyone is going to Google right now to find out. I had uh, a real close friend that stole my wife. <laughs> How about that? Google that right now and find out. Uh, when we come back, we will visit with White Sox player development director Chris Getz. We'll do that next on Hit and Run on the Score. Ah. 